Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Candace Keener. And Candace and I are both really big fans of the TV show Lost. Love Lost. Sarah got me hooked. Over the summer, I broke my foot and couldn't move, so little Jupiter, the Jack Russell, and I sat around and watched almost the entire series of Lost. She still has season six to watch, so for this episode, we're going to have to be careful, I guess, about what we reveal at the very end of Lost. I don't want to ruin anything for you in the podcast. Please Candace. don't. Please don't. <laughs> I, I came back as, as a favor to my fabulous friend, Sarah, so don't blow Lost. <laughs> All right. So this is a pretty unusual episode. We're going to be talking about characters in Lost who share the names of famous philosophers, famous physicists. And all the fabulous connections between what these people believed and did in their lives and what the characters on Lost uh, do to hold up those points of view. We're kind of blown away after looking into some of these lives in more detail how carefully the writers must have researched all of this and planned for all of it. It's pretty amazing. It is. And to keep this light and fun for all of you, we're not going to go into a lot of heavy details. We're going to give you the gist of some different philosophies and then start a conversation with you about the characters. Yeah, so if we cover your favorite philosopher in five minutes, don't get too offended. No. Just think, it's it's lost. Things are supposed to be... Pop culture, y'all. Be fun and crazy. So the first one on our list is John Locke, of course. He is one of the major characters on the show. He's the, quote, man of faith, and he always thinks that everything happens for a reason. And he's kind of this pitiful character, but also inspiring sometimes. He never... He never really comes into his own, I guess. He's always searching, right? Right. Um, so the real John Locke, which he's probably the most famous or most easily identifiable philosopher name from the show. The real John Locke is this anti-authoritarian British philosopher, and he's best known for theories about personal identity and for believing in religious tolerance, and he was a father of political liberalism and modern philosophical empiricism. And if you if you know his name, it's probably in connection with the Declaration of Independence or the U.S. Constitution or just helping kick off the Age of Enlightenment. Young John Locke had a fairly tumultuous childhood. He came of age during the English Civil Wars, so he's immediately a little skeptical of the king's divine right to rule. He's well-educated. He studies some medical chemistry, and he writes his first major political work in 1660, which is ironically the, f- the same year that the monarchy is restored, and it's called Two Tracks on Government, and not long after that, he grows very close to this lord and benefactor, interestingly named Lord Anthony Ashley Cooper. You might recognize the name Anthony Cooper. It is Locke's father, his wayward father on the show. Push you off a balcony father. Steal your organ father. (laughs) Um, But this John Locke becomes the Lord's physician and helps, you know, just helps run his household, picks up a lot of his ideas. They have this weird organ connection, which again, on the show, strange organ donations. Um, Locke devises this silver tube and it inserts it into the Lord's liver, this tumor in his liver. It helps drain it away when it's getting inflamed. Sounds awful. I don't think I would want a silver tube inserted into my liver, but 
It if works. you need one. <laughs> um, his biggest philosophical piece is an essay concerning human understanding. It doesn't publish until 1689, but he, it, it takes about his whole life to work on distilling these ideas he comes up with in his youth. Um, it, it publishes when he's 57 years old, and most of his major works publish after that. That's another connection we saw, because John Locke on Lost is, he's a... He's probably in his late 50s or so, and clearly this is the most exciting, interesting time in his life. He worked at a box factory before. <laughs> um, but John Locke, the philosopher, was really interested in the idea that human reason could grant access to moral truth. And in 1664's Essays on the Law of Nature, he wrote, Since man has been made such as he is, equipped with reason and his other faculties, and destined for this mode of life, there necessarily result from his inborn constitution some definite duties for him, which cannot be other than they are. Does that sound a little familiar? A lot familiar. You know, he has a purpose, he has a duty. Um, so John Locke comes back to England. He's been in and out of the country with his benefactor who keeps falling in and out of favor. He comes back to England after the Glorious Revolution, actually on the same ship within the same party as the future Mary II. And um, just sort of works a little more on setting up this new government and helps write the English Bill of Rights and then retires to a friend's house and lives with her and her family until his death. And just to give you one last picture of John Locke's major, huge, broad philosophies encompassed into a short kernel of information, he argued that humans would be able to eke out the natural laws that make us understand right and wrong by ourselves. We should be able to do that by ourselves. And therefore, we shouldn't be too much controlled by government or police, even though he conceded that a, a few rules here and there certainly help people do the right thing. But he thought that, you know, we have the rights to our own bodies and to the labor that comes from our bodies. And because we're capable of this thought, um, we should have a fair amount of power over ourselves. I think that, again, kind of an interesting connection. The philosopher certainly seems a lot more confident in his ideas than the island man, but still some some connections about just how they see the world. Well, number two on our list, yes, we have a list, just like the others had their list, is Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And he was born in 1712, and he's often grouped in with the Enlightenment thinkers, but some of his thoughts were a little bit more romantic, and I'll elaborate on that in just a second. So what he proposed was that as we become more invested in science and art, we become morally bankrupt but despite that belief, he went on to Paris in 1742 to become a musician. And one of the works that he composed was an opera titled The Village Soothsayer, which leads me to point out, in case you need to be hit over the head, that his uh, lost mirrored person is Danielle Rousseau, who was a village soothsayer in her own right. So uh, Rousseau, the philosopher, had five children with his partner, but he turned all of them over to the Paris orphanage. Uh, which is ironic considering that Danielle Rousseau spent her entire adult life on the island seeking out the one child that she had had, Alex. (laughs) So Rousseau suspected that a lot of philosophers were actually self-serving and they were alienating people from nature. 
And I think that this point of view is really nicely summed up from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Uh, Rousseau essentially sought to preserve human freedom in a world where human beings are increasingly dependent on one another for the satisfaction of their needs. And if you need a visual to part with that, think about the camp on the beach where all the losties lived. Uh, people are incredibly dependent on someone to fish for them or help them make a shelter, and so no one can be entirely self-serving. But Danielle Rousseau, by contrast, lives on her own, but she's not self-serving. She is self-sufficient. Do you see the difference there? Okay. So Rousseau goes on to state that everyone needs to have an identity independent from society's opinions of them. But you may wonder, in an autonomous community, can everyone actually be equal Or is it better to live alone? And if you flash back to some of the power struggles that we saw in the lost camp, you may think Danielle really did have the right idea, striking out on her own. So I mentioned that some of his ideas were more romantic in nature. So if you think about romantic poets like Blake or Wordsworth or Coleridge, who marvel at mountains and seasons, native populations, they're essentially communing better with nature. And that's what Rousseau thought that we should be doing. So... Danielle Rousseau, we see living alone and in nature, being totally self-sufficient. What are some other similarities that she might have with Rousseau, the philosopher? I thought it was interesting how she liked music and how delighted she was when Saeed repaired her music box. She never could quite bring herself to assimilate with the losties at their camp, but she was definitely there when they needed her. She was helpful. She was very helpful. Uh, And if that's not enough of a connection between Danielle Rousseau and Rousseau the philosopher, I'll point out one more Rousseau who she could be connected with, and that's Henri Rousseau, the French painter. And he primarily painted jungle scenes, even though he never really left France to step foot in a jungle. I have a poster of his on my desk. Of a tiger in, in the, the jungle, rain. in the rain. And he once said that he had no teacher other than nature. And among his jungle scenes, he had two more that stood out to me as being interesting and perhaps uh, pointing to Danielle Rousseau. And those titles are The Boat in the Storm and Woman Walking in an Exotic Forest. And you can Google image those to see for yourself. So it sounds like she's a combination of these two. I would say so. Pretty interesting. So the next guy on our list, he is a Scottish philosopher. That gives you a little hint. His name is David Hume, and his character double is Desmond Hume, who is the constant. The rules don't apply to Desmond. He's one of my favorite characters. And he's kind of our first outsider character. He's, uh, I don't know, he, he stands out compared to the other ones, considering he had this horrible, isolated time where he's living in the hatch by himself. Um, he He's a little more adjusted than the crash survivors, I think. But the real David Hume was born in 1711. He's a Scottish philosopher. He's a historian. He's an economist. And he attempted to understand the mind and came to the conclusion that we can only know what we experience, which... I think I can see a little connection there. He was inspired by Isaac Newton and, surprise, surprise, John Locke. He was born in Edinburgh and the son of a small-time lord. He got into law but never really uh, practiced it, didn't really like it. Um, his most famous works were written in his 20s, even though he later came back to it, revised it over and over again. But some of his more popular works came in 1751, where he 
started to revise some of his earlier writings. And in this work, The Inquiry Concerning the Principles of Morals, he suggested that the internal consciousness or ideas came from impressions, which were things that we actually experience. So so your ideas come from your impressions. And he also developed a theory of causality where one impression or idea would breed another one. So if I drop a book, Candace knows that it'll fall. Um, it's it's just what you can assume will happen because everything else in your life has told you that's what will happen. And it was this causality that he believed was in itself belief. It, if the ground was wet, it must have rained earlier. And he defined this belief as a vivid idea. So it was more than just a regular idea. It was a lively idea or a vivid idea. It was something extraordinary. It had a lot of faith behind it. In his middle age, he got a job keeping the Abacus Library at Edinburgh, and he became a historian there, which is something he had always wanted to do. He wrote A History of England. It went through 50 editions. It was really influential at the time, like very readable and about all sorts of people besides kings, and comparably impartial to a lot of histories written at the time. And these make him famous. The Catholic Church actually bans his all of his writings, which is a true measure of fame for an author. And in 1763, he goes to Paris and meets up with none other than Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And Rousseau doesn't treat him very well. So um, Hume takes him back to England. Rousseau is being persecuted, you know, offers him a place to stay. But Rousseau is a little paranoid, you know, like some other Rousseaus we know, (laughs) and starts suspecting there's a plot against him flees back to Paris in the middle of the night and starts slandering Hume, saying, you know, he he was after me. Um, Hume is forced to publish all of their correspondence together to clear his name, to prove, no, I, I didn't, I wasn't planning on doing anything evil to Rousseau. Um, but he returned to Edinburgh in 1769 and died there in 1776. And even though he's not that well known today, he proved to be quite influential to later philosophers, including Immanuel Kant, John Stuart Mill, and Jeremy Bentham, who's going to pop up a little later on our list. It's another name you might recognize. But before we get to Jeremy Bentham, let's talk about the the Russian anarchist on our list, and that is Mikhail Bakunin, who shares the exact same name with his lost counterpart. Uh, although I don't have a whole, whole lot to say about him and not too many similarities to draw from, but I figured having the exact same name, uh, you all would be upset if I did not delve into it. So here goes. He was born in May 1814, and one of his first accomplishments was translating Hegel into Russian. And a very famous line from his first essay that gives us a taste of Bakunin's ideas is this. The desire for destruction is, at the same time, a creative desire, too. And he ended up being sentenced to death in 1849 for revolutionary activity, but that sentence was commuted to life in prison. But he was very productive. This is where he did some of his best writing. And here was the idea uh, that Bakunin had about government. The problem with government was that it existed. 
He had a big problem with authority. And what he was promoting instead was something called instinctive socialism. What this means is that the people would revolt against the established society. And after the revolution, they will instinctively find a type of labor that appeals to their natural skills and then organize themselves according to their labor. However, uh, there needs to be some sort of secret organization that can just oversee society, mm. keep an eye on things, but this can't be a typical state-run government. It has to be sort of a, a big brother, some sort of initiative, if you will, because a state-run government would end up being too powerful and self-serving. So what do we have to say about our, our lost Mikhail? Uh, basically, as you remember, he came to the island after responding to the newspaper ad, Would You Like to Save the World?, and perhaps he did, or perhaps he just wanted to get away At from... At one point, he did. Yeah, he he had hopes that he could reform, he could revolutionize. Uh, and yet, he liked to live alone and work alone, so they installed him at the flame. With a bunch of C4 in his basement. That's right, that's right. And not surprisingly, he defied death several times, perhaps the, uh, the most defiant act being when he stepped inside the pylons and foamed at the mouth and bled from the ears. Good job, Mikhail, that was really dramatic. But he was really good at taking orders to preserve the island. He responded to that secret level of government. He knew he had to listen while he was doing his job. And he finally died of his own accord when he detonated the hand grenade in the looking glass. That's pretty interesting. So... Our next entry is actually just kind of another famous dead man, Jeremy Bentham. <laughs> and he's he's not a real person at all. This is John Locke's alias when he returns to the real world in this attempt to get the Oceanic Six to return. And he starts off really confident, really brave. You know, he's going to he's going to get everybody to come back. He's going to rescue all the people stuck on the island. He ends up with a noose around his neck, having this heart-to-heart with Benjamin Linus, and um, things are, are very things pitiful. Things are bad. That's Rock a, bottom. That's a dark, dark scene in Lost. One yeah. of the darkest, I'd say. But the real guy, Jeremy Bentham, he's a moral philosopher, and he's best known for his ideas on utilitarianism, which was the belief that we should evaluate actions by how they create happiness. Um even if that was like the happiness of the greater good, you try to create happiness for as many people as possible, which I think can apply to our our lost alias as well. Bentham was also a critic of law and a legal reformer as well. Um, he's influenced, not too surprisingly, by John Locke and David Hume. So I feel like the writers must have had all of these guys in the same philosophy class they took or something. <laughs> but Jeremy Bentham was born in London. He came from this family of attorneys, and he was really precocious. He starts learning Latin at age four. Well, who doesn't? <laughs> I know I did. Um, but his first book is sometimes called The Beginning of Philosophic Radicalism, and it catches the eye of a Lord Shelburne, who reads the essay and calls on Bentham and makes him his friend and his patron. And by 1785, Bentham starts traveling, ultimately heading to Russia. I don't know. Maybe he could meet some some anarchists there. He heads to Russia to visit his brother and writes his first essay in economics and starts to get into prison reform, too. He's a man of many talents. Comes back to England in 1788, hoping to get into politics. That doesn't work out. Instead, he starts writing about legislation, writing about law. 
and publishes an introduction to the principles of morals and legislation in which he defines utility as, quote, that property in any object whereby it tends to produce pleasure, good, or happiness, or to prevent the happening of mischief, pain, evil, or unhappiness to the party whose interest is concerned. And he assumed that men work to avoid pain, to pursue pleasure and happiness, and therefore legislation should cater to the, quote, greatest happiness of the greatest number, a.k.a. you six people should go back to the island and save all those other people. Um, he became pretty famous at home and abroad. He was made a French citizen. Um, and then this is honestly my favorite fact about this guy. It's just really weird. Okay, after he dies, he asks that his body be dissected in front of his friends, his head be mummified, his skeleton mounted and then topped with this new wax head. And then the whole thing would be dressed in his old clothes and mounted and preserved in a glass case. And you can still see it at the University College in London. And, I mean, clearly, I think this is why they picked Bentham here. I definitely agree. <laughs> the the fancy body weird stuff. The fancy body weird stuff. <laughs> I like where you're going with that. All right, next on our list is C.S. Lewis, or Clive Staples Lewis, who is our lost mirror of Charlotte Staples Lewis, a redhead like myself. So, of course, she's my favorite character. So a little bit on C.S. Lewis first. He's known primarily as a Christian apologist. He was a Christian as a child, and then when he went to Oxford University, he became an atheist, and then later in his life would convert to Christianity. And this is all chronicled in The Pilgrim's Regress, if you want to read his words for yourself. So when C.S. Lewis went to Oxford, it was during a time of heated debate between realists and idealists. And realism explained that the universe is composed of unalterable, fixed truths that don't depend on you believing in them or a god or absolute being to control them. And the idea here is that life can be meaningful without a god. Lewis ultimately was a joy seeker. This is how he describes himself. He thought that realism would bring him the joy that he sought. And when he searched for it, he trusted only empirical evidence, things that he could see, things that he could touch, facts and figures. However, when his tutor, W.T. Kirkpatrick, died, he began to doubt that realism could actually bring him joy. And so this is when he starts turning to theism and then eventually Christianity. And it's very hard to sum up a lifelong spiritual pilgrimage, but perhaps this phrase from him will help. It is more important that heaven should exist than that any of us should reach it. So something joyful to strive for. And when you think about Charlotte and Lost, uh, some obvious similarities being that she was also Oxford educated, but she was striving for something her whole life, and that was the island, because after she left it as a child, her mother denied that it existed, and she was determined throughout her whole life to get back there, and this is why she became an anthropologist. And even though she was very serious, we did see moments of joy from her. So think back to the moment in Tunisia when she discovers that polar bear skeleton. And she, big grin. Big grin. Ecstatic. So if we're to look at Charlotte's life like C.S. Lewis's life, we see that completion of the pilgrimage from the land of joy to a world with plenty of doubt and empirical facts back to a place where she found much joy. But 
unfortunately for Charlotte, who finally proclaimed that this place was death. Yeah. I don't know that it was too joyful. I kind of wonder if, if they brought her, since she is a character from late in the series, I wonder if they brought her in after so many people compare Lost to Narnia, the Chronicles of Narnia, which is C.S. Lewis's fam- most famous work. Right. That's a very valid point, and I don't remember Narnia too well, but I, I do think that one of the characters tried to affirm that Narnia existed and was told by a parent that, no, in fact, it was false. So those of you out there who've read it can assure me of that. So now we're going to move away from the philosophers a little bit and head into the realm of physics, although the character is still going to match up somebody who arrived with Charlotte. Another a fun character. Charlotte's love. Charlotte's true love. And that, of course, is Daniel Faraday, also known as Twitchy. And <laughs> he's the skinny tie-wearing physicist. And he's a very helpful introduction to the series because he can explain what on earth is going on with all this time shifting and traveling and he can explain when everything starts flashing and they hear the terrible noise and grab their ears that we're unstuck in time and send John Locke back as Jeremy Bentham to try to remedy. So Daniel Faraday is named after Michael Faraday, who was born in 1791. And surprise, surprise, he's a physicist. He's best known for his experiments and discoveries in electromagnetism. And he was the first guy to produce electric current from a magnetic field and invented the first electric motor and dynamo. Um, he's a pretty well-known chemist as well. He wrote a book on chemistry. He discovered several organic compounds. But he has this great Cinderella scientist story, like rags to riches all the way. He was born the son of a blacksmith and a very intelligent wife. And his father was sick, so he couldn't work very much. And the kids were often hungry. Um, but he starts working as a paper boy and he takes the time to read the papers. He's also working at a bookbinder shop, you know, just sort of running errands. But using every spare moment he can to to read some of the stuff he's delivering. And eventually he got an apprenticeship with the bookbinder. And he got really inspired by an article on electricity that he read in the third edition of Encyclopedia Britannica. After that, he started conducting his own experiments, building his own voltaic pile and stuff. And his life really changes when he's given a ticket to see Sir Humphrey Davies speak at the Royal Institution in London. And... Young Faraday is absolutely mesmerized by this speech. He takes all these notes and he must be a super fan because he <laughs> binds his notes and sends them off to Davy and asks for a job. And there isn't one available immediately. But as soon as one comes up, as soon as this other assistant is fired for brawling, Davy <laughs> thinks of this precocious boy and hires him on as a lab assistant. And this is 1812. They work together for almost 10 years, and Faraday just learns everything he can. You know, he's had a pretty light education up until this point. But by the time he strikes out on his own in 1820, he's a master of chemistry and finds his fame as a chemist initially. He's called on by courts as this expert witness, which I kind of like the the sound of that. This that, a, that a case would need an Faraday. expert physicist witness. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, he starts producing compounds of carbon and chlorine. He discovers benzene. And then he starts getting into his first love again, electrical 
experiments, experimentation, and he creates the first electric motor in 1821 and publishes a related work on that. But the main idea about electricity that kept him going was he just didn't think that electricity was a fluid, which a lot of people thought at the time. I can kind of see that if you look at lightning, maybe you would think it was just something flowing down from the sky. He didn't think it was a fluid, though. He thought that instead it was this vibration or a force. And he also thought that all electricities were probably the same. So that the lightning that came down from the sky, the static on my purple fleece, they're ultimately the same thing. And he set about trying to, to prove that some way. And he discovered electromagnetic induction in 1831, which it, it meant that electricity could finally leave the realm of fun, interesting, but not very applicable experiments and become something possibly very useful for man because it's the principle behind the electric transformer and the electric general, both understandably pretty useful things. He helped coin words like electrode and cathode and ion. And in 1832, he started those experiments to prove that all electricities were the same. And his findings ultimately drew him into a theory of electrochemistry. Um, he always work, you can imagine, it takes a toll on him. Kind of like mm-hmm. Faraday, you know, he's a little worn down. Um, and in 1839, he has a nervous breakdown. It takes him years to recover from it. And then by 1855, his mind is beginning to fail. Victoria offers him a house and knighthood just because he's been such a tremendous asset to the country for so long. He willingly accepts the house. He turns down the knighthood. He just doesn't ever want to have to devote himself to things outside of science. Any word on whether Victoria gave him a leather-bound journal? Oh, possibly with a with an <laughs> inscription. <laughs> yeah, and he could he could maybe write something about Desmond Hume in it. Well, the very last famous person on our historical name dropping lost list is someone really wacky. And um, as Sarah mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, I have not yet made it through season six. And as I understand, this person comes alive and really becomes unfolded like all the layers of an onion in this final season. So she's going to help me out a little bit when we move from historical reference to uh, character importance, the lost (laughs) reference. Uh, Richard Alpert. Oh, the man with eyeliner, as Sawyer called him. He is a strange character, and he is actually uh, someone who really lived in history, played a very significant role, and is still alive today. But you will not find Richard Alpert. If you go searching for him online, you will find Ram Das, the guru Ram Das, And I'll tell you why momentarily. So Richard Alpert started out uh, his career with a Ph.D. from Stanford and went to work at Harvard University. And he has one of the most famous co-workers in all of U.S. history. That's Timothy Leary, who Richard Nixon once called the most dangerous man in America. And Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert were a dangerous duo because they were testing psychedelic substances on willing students and prisoners. They would conduct sessions where people would trip and then record observations. This was the beginning of the counterculture movement. And Alpert really thought that psychedelic drugs would revolutionize, that was his word, psychology and religion. 
Now, he was forced to leave Harvard with Leary, but they continued their experiments in a Boston neighborhood where Albert bought a home on Kenwood Avenue in 1962. And the neighbors tried to get it shut down, but Albert's father, George, was a lawyer and appealed their complaint. Now, this house existed long before Leary had his, his mansion, his country home, where he continued on with his experiments. So let's just focus on the little neighborhood home. Leary's the one who came up with the line, turn on, tune in, drop out. And this was the the idea behind the counterculture movement, that you could essentially change your life with these drugs. You didn't have to be the buttoned-up 1950s businessman that your father was. And Don Latin, who wrote a book about the two men called The Harvard Psychedelic Club, describes Leary as the charmer of the experiments and Albert as the intense professorial type. Intense. intense. Would you say that Lost Richard is intense? I, I think, think that's so. the word that describes him. <laughs> now, Richard Alpert became friends with an undergraduate named Ronnie Winston, who had approached him with his friend Andy Weil about getting involved in these experiments. But because they were only 18, they said, no, that was not going to be okay with Harvard. Ronnie is the same Winston whose family is the Harry Winston Diamond family. So he had plenty of money and had a lot in common with Alpert. They came from uh, wealthy backgrounds with a lot of class and prestige. And they formed a very intimate but not sexual relationship. Meanwhile, Ronnie's friend Andy, who had also appealed to Alpert but had been turned down and didn't get into this inner circle of friendship, uh, he became the now-famous Dr. Andrew Weil, who is the face of integrative medicine. And you've probably seen his vitamins or his picture by the Origins counter in your favorite department store. He was not pleased at being shut out of the circle. And he eventually exposed the professor's practices in the Harvard Crimson newspaper, which was one of the factors that led to their being dismissed from the faculty. So all of that background at school leads us to the fact that in 1967, after the house on Kenwood Avenue, he he left, he went to India to study yoga and meditation. And while he was there, Albert became Guru Ram Das, which means servant of God. And when he returned to the United States, he began a foundation to help prison inmates find their spiritual moorings. And he became associated with the Dying Project, which aids terminally ill people and their caretakers as they consciously accept that they're dying. And a stroke in 1997, which was a year after Timothy Leary died, left him partially paralyzed. But if you go to Ram Dass's website, you can see that he still has online materials and videos and ways for you to learn more about him. As for our friend Richard Alpert on Lost, I think we can definitely give him the title of spiritual intermediary. Definitely. I mean, he's a, he's a helpful guy. He, he acts as the intermediary between Jacob, which is, I mean, without giving away too much to Candace, who has not seen season six again, you know, he, he accepts that role. He wants it because he feels that Jacob's hands off approach is not really working. But, um, ultimately he's kind of frustrated by how little he knows, which I think is interesting that, um, this Richard Alpert, Leaves. He goes to India to study yoga and meditation, looking for something else, you know, something to help explain what he's been doing and what his life is about. So you could say that Lost Richard also leads a countercultural movement of sorts by changing the way that the island has been led and conducted and ushering a new Richard era in. Yeah. 
Very interesting. Uh, something else about Lost Richard is that even though he perhaps stands for a greater good that is sometimes terrifying and inexplicable, he's pretty nonviolent. He seems to be... Um, Inclusive of others, when young Ben approaches him and says that he wants to join the others, he, he agrees to take him in, but he's going to have to be patient. He's going to have to become enlightened. He's a patient in a man. He is a for, patient man. For most of the show. <laughs> and then he's not anymore. <laughs> and that is as much as I know about Richard. And I'm sure that some of you listening are itching to list off more comparisons. So I would advise you to send your thoughts and ideas to Sarah via email. And as soon as I catch up with season six, I will have to join that conversation. And again, we know that there are plenty more famous people in history uh, who share names with people on Lost. So perhaps you can send us your favorite characters and their historical counterparts and draw some conclusions and similarities or even striking dissimilarities of your own. Yeah, you can email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. Also, if you want to read a little more about Lost, you know, if you're sort of starting to miss it. It's about the time of year when you start getting geared up for the next season. I think I'm starting to miss it a little bit. But if you want to read some on it, you can go to the website and search for the Dharma Initiative. Tracy Wilson wrote an article a few years ago. Pretty interesting stuff. You can find it on our webpage. It's www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. The HowStuffWorks.com iPhone app is coming soon. Get access to our content in a new way. Articles, videos, and more, all on the go. Check out the latest podcasts and blog posts, and see what we're saying on Facebook and Twitter. Coming soon to iTunes. iTunes.